I'm Lou Eisenboxing, uh, a historian and writer. And this week on Ring Talk, we have one of my favorite authors. We have Mark Allen Baker, and he has this fantastic book out on Tony Canzaneri. Canzaneri, as you can see, was he was a phenomenal champion. He a uh, five-time world champion in three weight divisions, featherweight, junior lightweight, and lightweight, undisputed champion. So when he was the champ, he was the best on earth. And um, just an alive, charismatic, fantastic person. He was almost like Ali before Ali. Everyone loved him and a wonderful fighter. Mark, uh, Mark Baker, Mark Allen Baker is a business executive and he's author of hundreds of articles, by the way, in more than 25 books. Uh, he's prolific and brilliant. And he's the only person to serve on, on the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Um, as an author, historian, chairperson, sponsor, volunteer, and biographer. So he does it all. Uh, he also serves on the board of directors of the Connecticut Boxing Hall of Fame. A lot of great fighters that come out of Connecticut. One, The man that um, my mentor, Angelo Dundee, called the greatest man to ever set foot in the ring, Willie Pep, is from Connecticut. And he was also accorded a lifetime award of merit by the State University of New York in 1922, which is a huge honor. And we are pleased as punch to welcome the magnificent Mark Allen Baker here today on Ring Talk. Thank you, Lou. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Thank you. I seem to be out of focus, but I don't know if it's the screen or just me personally. So we'll, we'll see. I love your book on, on uh, Tony Canzaneri. The first thing I wanted to ask you, I've been wanting to ask you, his, his manager, Sam Goldman, was, was he related to Charlie Goldman? Yes. Yes, he was. He was a brother. Okay, that's what I yeah. thought. And, uh, I was, and so they never really worked together, I guess, in gold. They, well, they, they didn't. They didn't. They Not really, in a way, because because Sammy ended up being more of a correspondent for a while. And while he was kind of getting used to the whole um, pugilistic environment, so to speak, um, before he started taking on clients. And he was down in... Um, down in the New Orleans area, working for a paper down there, and obviously linked up with Pete Herman, and uh, carried Pete all the way to the Bantam Championship. So that worked out extremely well, and that's where Mr. Canzaneri fits in. I can't believe it. Somehow, you know, you hear stories all the time on how proximity plays a role in success, and and here's Tony Canzaneri just living a few blocks away from Pete Herman. Incredible. One of the greatest bantamweight fighters ever to have lived. And, and they formed a great, they formed a close relationship. Did, as, yeah, as close as it could get at the time without right. being uh, too interfering, so to speak. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, Tony was all ears. If he could get Pete to say anything or work with him in the gym, he was like everybody else. He was like, teach me, teach me, teach me. But Pete Herman was also very busy, too. And uh, Tony took advantage when he could, when he could. And of course, you know, when all of a sudden Tony's world gets upset and he's heading out of town, uh, here comes Pete Walton in as a, just what a mentor, writing a note to his former boxing manager and say, hey, look at, you know, this guy's good. Can you take him under your wing, so to speak? And, and it's another strange circumstance where you have to say, you know, I mean, what's Goldman thinking, right? Is he thinking, you know, okay, Pete, I'll take a look at him, right? Or, or is it, you know, for real? I mean, will he really take a look at him? And it worked out great. Yeah, absolutely. Because you, you, I would have liked to have seen his face, Mark Sam Goldman's face, the first time you saw Canzaneri. 
I know. I, I wonder what he thought because I have a section in the book where uh, some of the guys down in New Orleans finally had a glimpse. One of them was Basil Galliano and his manager were at the train station and took one look at, you know, a little kid, essentially, 90-pound Tony Kanzanek. Wasn't even 90, I don't think, at that point, Lou. Right. And uh, he waltzes off the train and everyone's like, you got to be kidding me. Right. You know, because here's dad. His dad's down there. His oldest brother, Joseph's down there. And he's telling these two guys about this kid, this younger Tanzanian kid at home who's, this guy's the real deal. And, and it makes you wonder, okay, well, does, did that translate to Goldman or what did real Goldman really think? And Goldman never said much. It was kind of funny. He never said much. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, Angelo Dundee used to say, it's not the size of the man in the fight. And you've heard this a million times. It's the size of the fight in the man. And, true. and boy, did Tanzania have more fight. But also, Technically, I mean, he was a he. He had everything. He would be like a five-star, five-pool player in baseball. Tremendous brains, could improvise, you know, on the spur of the moment. Could punch, brilliant defensively, technically flawless. He could do it all. More talent yeah. than one in his era. I was surprised. I mean, he picked up. He essentially picked up on so many things, you know, so many little uh, nuances from other fighters. Uh, you know, being at some of his defensive skills. I uh, picked up some from Pal Moore uh, going way, way back. Uh, right. Obviously, listen to whatever Pete Herman said and whatever Pete's uh, contacts were like. Uh, but he did. He could he could get in there. He could imitate. He was quicker than people expected and, uh, and developed his own style later on and his own voice. It took right. a while for him to develop his own voice like a lot of uh, pugilists. He also didn't panic under pressure. Some fighters do, but he always remained calm. He always had that, I guess that's that pro experience. He, he knows what he had to do. He knows when he made a mistake and was able to just circumvent it and, and get going with the fight to put a bad round behind him and still continue going. Very true. And it drove people nuts. I, there's, a, there's a point where Joey Adams said, and he may have said it to newspapers, he said it in his book, though, Tony used to drive him nuts because Tony never got nervous and Tony would show up like a minute before the show and was ready to go and, and it would drive Joey crazy because he's like, you're not nervous. It also drove it, that same, that same attitude was what he had in the ring. I mean, he'd show up to fight whenever he felt like it. He wasn't bothered by anything and uh, just got on with the show. He had a job to do and knew how to do it. Yeah. You know, Ali once said, it's just a job, you know, the waves hit the sand, people fly kites. I beat people up. It's what I do. God, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that attitude. I mean, you think most of because when you read some of these other books, you know some of these guys are nervous. You know really nervous, yeah. someone won't even talk to anybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that bad. I mean, Ambers was like that. Ambers was a nervous wreck. He didn't want anybody to talk to him. And, and, and everybody knew it, so everyone left him alone. But here comes Tony, and, you know, nothing's bothering Tony. The list of guys he fought and beat, is is stunning but what's up what's, what's upsetting to me is you want to go out i want to go out in the street to boxing fans or anyone and, and take the book and say you got to read this because it's not just tony canzanari it's american history which is world history it's a slice in time and the depression and it's showing how people survived in such a terrible time and canzanari gave these people hope not just italian people yeah, yeah. Everyone. oh yeah that's a great analysis on your part. 
Very, very true. And uh, I couldn't wait to get into them after having an opportunity to write um, Lou Amber's biography and see the world from Lou's perspective and upstate New York at that time period and what Lou had to do to get recognized back to up and upstate. It was all, I mean, he didn't have, I mean, Tony eventually had the luxury of New York City, but Lou was upstate in the trend. And for me, it was wonderful to, the comparison of, of Amber's upstate New York and Tony downstate and what they had to go th go through to get any kind of legitimate recognition. Uh, it was, it's just, it was quite an, it was a, and plus, like you said, it's an interesting period. I mean, people don't realize just how hard the thirties really were, you know, from, from 29 to 33 and 32 in particular, uh, the depression was just so, so challenging. So, so challenging. I know that Chris Dundee was telling me that the main thing McLaren and Ross, Lou Ambers and Canzanary gave people more than excitement and entertainment was hope. Yes. That, oh, you know, definitely. And uh, I mean, and what what a grouping, too, you know, and uh, it was a very I mean, when you look at, at Ross, McLaren and Canzanary, OK, that's understandable coming from those big cities, just what the popularity they can they can garner from those markets were and then they add ambers onto the list and then the dynamics of trying to work ambers into the whole background of the pieces for the championship was interesting too because kanzanari was reluctant to fight ambers i mean he knew he wanted big for a while he wanted the big money and goldman wanted the big money and he was i mean kanzanari ambers wasn't going to bring kanzanari an audience that he didn't already have, where Ross and McLaren would. And so, I mean, it was interesting to see those dynamics and, you know, that Ambers could even work his way into it. And that, uh, you know, just how that trans, that also that transition of Kansan area's mentor to Ambers, and because Ambers was a former sparring partner. Right, and you know, it's it's interesting, even fighters today demand these, I mean, you couldn't pay Kansan area and Ambers today what they'd be worth. You're looking at you know oh. tens of millions per fight if they're fighting today but and there's no one around today that has those skills but so many fighters today don't understand that it comes down to asses in the seats and you want to say to a guy uh, I, I don't want to pick names devin haney or someone and say yeah you, no one's saying you're not great but people aren't paying money to see you and people paid money to see kansanary and you only get to be champ for such a short time as you all know you have to make the most money while you have that title. And they, and those guys could really work the title. And I give some credit to their management too, uh, of how the, how the four of them were able to work, work that title and keep it competitive and keep it interesting. And for a person like, like McLaren blows me away all the time on how he could just, he always had that revenge factor. Like he couldn't wait to get in the ring the second time with a fighter. Just right. to, just to, to in, you know, just to prove this, it was a vendetta. And yeah. I was, so McLarnon was always in, you know, obviously Kanzanieri beat McLarnon before McLarnon just pounded Kanzanieri, literally. And I think in some ways, not to get ahead of ourselves, that was very much a turning point for, for Kanzanieri's career, that pounding by McLarnon. Well, he, he gave McLarnon the worst beating of his career. I mean, and, and I read that before that fight in Andrew Gallimard's book, um, Babyface Goes to Hollywood, that it was personal that Kanzanieri made comments about McLarnon's wife. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, yeah, I heard that as well. 
And I think that came from a New York City paper when she accompanied him to New York. I think uh, that that rings a bell with me, even outside of the source that you mentioned. So right. I, th I think he may have said something. Uh, I can't believe he would say it um, in a way to hurt McLarnan, but maybe a little early trash talk. I mean, it could surface. We know that. Yeah, I always wonder. I always take that with a grain of salt because after the war, Lewis met Schmeling, and Schmeling said, I never said any of those things about you. And Lewis just said, yeah, I know. And Schmeling had been so worried that, that, that Lewis had read that, you know, he's, he's not, Schmeling said he couldn't fight because he was black, and he wasn't smart because he was black, and Schmeling never said any of that. It was no. just complete hype, complete garbage. Yeah, and that's, and that's the hard part of being a writer, too, and going back and weeding through some of this stuff. Because it goes back to the old days where they would put these, you know, these matches in the paper before the fighters met terms and, and say so-and-so is going to fight so-and-so. And, -so, and it's, it looks like it's a, it's a done deal and it's going to be at Abbott's Field. And, and, and that stuff used to happen all the time. And they would create vendettas and problems between fighters and confrontations. And I think it stems from those old days. Of course, matching is one thing. Meeting terms, as you and I know, is a totally different perspective. Right. Yeah, and, and I know McLaren sued New York newspapers because they called them the Jew killer. And, oh. he, and he said, my hero is Benny Leonard. He said, these guys I'm fighting, it's not personal, it's business. I'm, I'm friends with Al Singer. I'm friends with all these guys. You know, I'm friends with Barney Ross. I, it's not personal, it's just business. You know, and he didn't like, you know, he didn't like being called that. But, you know, with, with a guy as, as Tanzanary, I mean, was liked by so many people. I mean, his opponents liked him. And you, you have so many great stories in your book, but especially at T Shore when McLarnan taps on his shoulder and then gives him a big hug. And I mean, they all loved him. Oh, so yeah. They just literally loved him. And, and you can see it. I mean, I just was reading Joey's book. But I mean, the introductions, I mean, Sinatra does an introduction to the book, Tashore does an introduction to the book. The list is endless. I mean, uh, they have so many people uh, that they knew and uh, worked with. And then going back to, uh, you know, some of the, these, these things, these remarks and stuff. I mean, I mean, there's so many that are just not, and that's why I like going to, I don't use a lot of uh, books per se. I use a lot of eyewitness accounts because I found they're the best because I can weed through three or four different accounts and get the right account. And right. Uh, that's what I try to do with most of the books. So you see most of the source material is direct from, from newspapers. And even those, you know, you gotta be real careful with too, but, right. but McFarlane who publishes my, the, the boxing biographies and some of my other books, the gentleman mentioned my garden book. They do a great uh, job. Uh, that um, uh, they demand it. You know, they don't they don't go for hypotheticals. They don't go for uh, rumors. And so I try to stick pretty much to the material with three good sources and, and then go with that if I can. That's that's a, a, a that's, I think, the salient point for all writers, because and you set the standard because Angel Dendy would say to me, don't go on Facebook with these stupid parlor games, you know. Jimmy McLaren would have beaten Jess Willard. And Angela was like, well, Willard was 6'7". He was a heavyweight. McLaren was a welter. That's an ignorant comment to make. Well, McLaren would have beaten Ray Leonard. Well, we don't know. Two different eras, you can't say. So, Yeah. Oh, Angela always had so many good stories. I was lucky enough 
you know, I, I date back a ways, believe it or not. I know it's hard with all the gray hair, but but I actually saw Jimmy McClarnon in person. At wow. In Canastota. And, uh, and I always kid around with some of my boxing group here in Connecticut. The first boxer, the first Connecticut boxer I ever corresponded with, with and everybody says, oh, don't tell me it's going to be Willie Pep. That was actually Gene Tunney. Wow. I actually wrote to Gene Tunney when I was a kid. And, and Tunney wrote back. So that's that's where all this stems from. I used to try to get my information directly from the source. Sometimes they were cooperative and other times they weren't. You know, one time, uh, Toronto has a well-known Caribbean festival every year. It used to be called Carabana, then they had to change the name. There was another one somewhere called Carabana. And one year, Floyd Mayweather Jr. showed up. And, he's, wow. and so I got a, a phone call, but I mean, a lot of people did. He wanted to appear at a gym local boxing gym, but he wanted 50 grand to appear wow. for an hour to talk to kids. And everyone said what I said to him, you know, boxing is a niche sport now, but in Canada, I mean, it's, it, it's so little money. These gyms are kept open by government subsidies. So no one's going to have that kind of money. And especially since Ali used to go to a lot of these gyms and speak for two, three hours for nothing. They just don't yeah. have that money. And back in the day, like Gene Tunney, you wrote to someone now, you'd have to pay. Whereas guys like Tony were such a gentleman in Kanzanari who, you know, would sign autographs for hours for people just to see him. He would influence their lives just to see that smile. Like you said, in that bar, he's walking out of his bar and he smiles at some guys. How you doing? And it made their life 40, 50 years later. They remember the moment as if it was yesterday. And it's so funny because I've had other people say that's the same thing that happened to us or the same thing that happened. I was talking to a writer, Colleen Acock, you may be sure you're familiar yeah, with some of her books, but she was saying, Mark, that was the same thing that happened to my dad when we were in New York. He, he wanted to chase down uh, Kanzanieri. So we went into to, uh, Kanzanieri's bar and sure enough, he was in there and had his picture taken with him. Wow. But uh, that story was a true story. And I opened with that because I wanted to bring the readers down to where Kanzanieri would feel comfortable, where they would feel comfortable and realize that he was just an ordinary guy. I mean, he was a guy you could come up to and talk to or sit down and he and he could play an audience too. So he saw these guys and I, and I know the guys. So he saw the guys and so he lifted the big names, you know, like Ross and McLarnon and, you know, he played a crowd real well, but he was so personable and uh, he had produced perfect, perfect host for a place like that and for any sports bar actually. Right, and it's it's interesting that his boxing timing translated to comedic timing. I guess timing is timing. He he was just the, the, the lines you have in your book. I mean, he was very funny. He knew what he was doing. Oh stage. yeah, very much. I don't know if he. I don't know how much. It looks like Joey contributed a lot, but Joey stole a lot too. If you right. go through and he, but he credits him. You know, he'll say, "I picked this up from, you know, Henny Youngman, or I picked this up from Milton Berle, or whatever." He'll go back. But it is, is interesting. It is really ironic because Burrow's the biggest of all the thieves of all the comics, but he was a great comic. Very, very good comic. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, when I when I was reading your book, I, I, Kanzanari, how much of his, because he needed money at the end of his career, I guess, which is why he fought on. How much of him, how much of him needing the money was he overspent his income like Joe Lewis? or the mob stole it, or he, he just didn't get as much as he was supposed to get? The answer to that is he 
was almost a Ponzi scheme scheme of investments. That's what I saw, where he would start a business and get it going for a while. And then as it started to fade off a little bit, he'd start another business. And, you know, he was in so many different clothing, clothing store, liquor store. And then he started the, uh, the resort up in Marlboro. And uh, when it was under his name, his dad ran it for a while and the family lived there. And it was a, a wonderful place for them. There's wonderful stories about how much the family enjoyed it. But, but unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of business conducted, probably uh, good balance sheet business being conducted. And as a resort, uh, as no pun intended, Tony had to keep on fighting or had to, or had to start another business to, to finance his arrears on taxes, uh, construction bills. I mean... I mean, I, you could just go through the newspaper and it was like every few months, yeah, there was bills that weren't paid. It was unfortunate because he really felt strapped and wouldn't say anything to his parents. He was a wonderful son and, and cherished his parents. And I, it was hard. I mean, I wonder how much he regretted. He never said a word about it to the press or the media that I found. He never said, oh, dad ran the business into the ground or, or we shouldn't have done this or we shouldn't have done that or shouldn't have put another you know, another floor on the hotel, but they did and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But he, he never said that where I, I never saw him bitter toward his family or anything like that. Did, do you think that contributed to his early death, all the financial burdens and the fact that he, he ne never seemed to have a day off just to relax and enjoy himself? True, true. He did never seem, but he liked the pace. He liked that New York City pace. So he, he, was, he loved the nightlife. I mean, he loved the nightlife. Uh, he and Rita loved the nightlife. They loved right. going out. They befriended Sullivan, Winchell, Wilson. Uh, they loved falling in, into all the gossip columns. Um, but uh, I really think he just, he just uh, a lot of bad investments chased after him. I, I, I really think that. Didn't Sam, did Sam Goldman help him in any way, or was there really no one there to guide him in that sense? Well, Sam was involved in some. Sam was involved with a clothing store. I know that. Right. So I think Sam helped a little. I don't know exactly. You know, Sam kept cards close to the vest a lot of times. He didn't say much either to the press. And he, after Tony started speaking, he even backed off more. Uh, but I, th I just, you know, I don't. the answer to your question is I don't think he, he did that much. Form from yeah, financially pers from a financial perspective. I mean, maybe he pulled back a few percentages on a fight or whatever, but I, I that never surfaced that I saw. Yeah, it's, it's sad that I mean these guys come from poverty, so it's not surprising when you get money. You know, you look at a guy like Joe Lewis, and Lewis said, "I just overspent my income." He said, "Mike Jacobs said to me to put fifty percent of every dollar I made in a bank account for the IRS, and I didn't." Yeah. I just kept spending and spending because I thought it would last forever. And of course, and, and, yeah, and Tony did. He was always talking. I mean, you see that in the book. He's always talking, oh, maybe I'll open this over here, or maybe I'll get involved in a promotion business somewhere in the Midwest or down south. And uh, I, I think it, what it ended up being is, is he kept on, like I said, he'd start one business, it started failing, get another business to help finance that business. When that business, the other business started failing, get a third business to finance that. And then, and then the Marlboro situation, I mean, that just aided him financially. And uh, he was so lucky because he really got himself out of all of it. 
when he got when he you know teamed up with Joey Adams because those guys started charging they got big money I mean I put a list in there I mean not that they were you know Martin and Lewis but I but I put in there some of the salaries that these guys got and they did very well for themselves and Tony said at one point that he was out of hock essentially thanks to teaming up with Joey Adams that's incredible you know unreal I mean and and they had they were so good at building connections they really were yeah they 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 were a great team but to come out of hawk must have been tremendous you know relief to him what you know what i'm wondering is at, at the time that he fought boxing i i guess since the carponche dempsey fight was controlled by the mob and only the killer madden was the guy until 32 33 and did and i know that mclarnon for instance mclarnon's manager pop foster was childhood friends with Madden. So Madden didn't take money from McLaren, but of course forced McLaren to keep fighting. And long past when McLaren really wanted to keep fighting. And did they affect in any way Kanzanari? Um I mean he would have had to have dealt with them in some way because they controlled the sport. Yeah, exactly. I mean being in and and I talk about it, it starts coming up in the book when I start talking about some of the things Sammy Mandel faced in Chicago, where he was getting death threats, etc., when he was fighting Kanzanieri. Um Adams alludes to the fact that you know that there were always figures waiting outside uh, the showroom to meet and and talk to Tony. Um yeah, I think there was some element in that. Uh, it didn't surface to me as much through my sources as maybe it did through other people's. But you know, it wasn't like A. Vitale. When I was writing about A. Vitale, I couldn't ignore it. Uh, when I was writing about Willie Pep, it surfaced because it was in the in the papers and a lot of it. And uh, I had to cover the Macri murders, for example. Right. Uh, but uh, it didn't it didn't surface as much. And as much as now, had Tony fought ten years later, it could have it could have been totally different, I think. But you know, did they have a hand? I don't think he could avoid. It. I don't think anybody who fought as many times in Madison Square Garden could have not had a hand in something as Tony. Yeah. I mean, Tony just fought so many times. Yeah, I loved your book on which I have on Ava Tell, and I, the the thing with Tell and. In Kanzanieri, you know, people today don't realize, like they'll say Sinatra played mob-owned clubs. All entertainment back then was owned by the mob because they were the only ones during the Depression with the income, as you know, with the disposable income to keep it running. No one else could. They Very could have financial losses. So, you, you know, you had to deal with them. And it's, I mean, Barney Ross dealt with Capone on a very low level, but right. McLaren dealt with only Madden. You just, you know, you had to. There was no way around it. And I think, you know, in some ways it was good. It, it just didn't seem as strong as it did 10 years later when mm -hmm. when, when, when the mob just owned fighters. You know, we had Saxton, Gabo, and we know all the stories of, of what these guys faced then. That, uh, you know, it maybe was hidden more. I, I don't know. I didn't surface as much. Did I know it was there? Yeah. Did I know uh, there were some mob members up at Tony's Hotel up in Marlboro? Yeah. Yeah, I knew that, but I just didn't see that impact as much on his life as it was on other fighters uh, like like Atal. Yeah, I, I know that uh, with guys like that, it's uh, in the book I read in Only Madden, 
and I tried to contact the author. He just passed away, British author. He oh. said that in his book that um, a lot of times back then in the 20s and 30s, it was competition between the gangsters. So they really wanted to see which fighter was the better fighter rather than, although there were fights that were definitely fixed, but there was a story about Charlie Phil Rosenberg, Ray Arcel was training him. And he was supposed to, he was fighting for the Bantamweight title and he just, he, 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 they couldn't keep him away from the women. And he kept eating too much food. And so only Madden grabbed him and said, you're gonna stay in my apartment on the, on the <laughs> side. And, and Phil Rosenberg, Charlie Phil stayed there with Arcel and brought, brought Rosenberg's mother in to cook and he made the weight, but Madden thought, well, you know, he's gonna lose because he's been out every night. So he bet a couple thousand against him and Rosenberg won easily. And Arcel said to Rosenberg, you better get out of New York for a good six months. He's gonna kill you. I think I uh, I think I know in this book uh, the battle. I mean, one singer lost the fight to Kanzanieri. His his battle against Jaime Kaplan, yeah. and uh, it was kind of an interesting interlude. I put it in the book because you know some people thought Singer dumped the fight, and and to see that Kaplan bet so much money on Singer and was furious at the fighter after the fight. I mean, furious. They had they had a fisticuffs and they wanted nothing to do with each other. And I cover that whole, the dynamics of all that. And if Singer, I think Singer just got caught with a punch. But Yeah, and that happens. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, you know, I mean, you know that whole story. So, but uh, I, I put that in there specifically because somebody said, well, he probably dumped a fight if he if he lost in 36 seconds like he did to Kanzanier. And I just think he, he, he was just caught with a punch in that case, especially knowing what happened afterwards. And, and how bad he wanted to, to beat the daylights out of Kaplan and their yeah. whole fight there and how Kaplan then had the audacity, to, you know, want, you know, I mean, Singer wanted his contract back and Kaplan wouldn't give it to him. So I cover all the dynamics there and he'd realize that it was probably a lucky punch. So Yeah, but people don't realize even at featherweight, Kanzanieri could hit like a welter or a super welter. He had a phenomenally heavy hands. He could do damage to a lot of guys. He had heavy hands and he had small hands. He had right. custom, you know, uh, Goldman was always trying to get, he didn't like the bigger gloves. So Goldman would try hard always to get, you know, the cust as many custom made mitts into the picture as possible because Tony's hands were so small. But Tony could pack a punch, a big time punch when he wanted to. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how you note in your book that he had guys hurt and he, he didn't put them away. You know, he, he, he showboated and, and took his time winning on a points decisions. And, you know, sometimes fighters want the work, but other times it's, it, you know, when, like when McClarnham fought Kansaner the second time and had him hurt, you wanted to punish him. You know, he, mm -hmm. he could have let his hands go much more, but he wanted to keep him around and punishment and punish him. Was Kansaner when he showboated, was that just really showing off or is it just i wanted to work or i just wanted to embarrass this guy because you know there were a lot of guys like langford even years before who had to put up with stuff at various fighters and purposely punish fighters just to prove their manager or someone else wrong i i wish he didn't do it especially early on i i think he would have been a lot better if he didn't i think it i think he he it became part of his personality initially the showboating and everything did he and then 
so that it gradually he pulled back a little bit, but it was real bad at the beginning, you know, and I was, when I'm right, when I'm researching all this, I couldn't believe that he would take the attitude he was taking in the ring and making fun of certain individuals, but it slowly, gradually got pulled back a little bit, which was good, which I think helped him in the long run. Uh, did he hold back? Yeah, he pulled. Uh, he got the one that comes to mind is, is Johnny Dundee. When he fought Johnny Dundee, I mean, the first few rounds, I mean, the crowd was going nuts saying, you know, you guys got to fight. I mean, you're not fighting. He's pulling punches. And of course, Dundee hadn't been in the ring for a long time and Canzanieri had. And, and the two ended up being best friends, too. I mean, they would go out and burn the midnight oil constantly, both of them. So he didn't want to hurt him, really. This was nope. one of his idols. Very much, very much, as was Leonard. Well, you brought up the name Benny Leonard, and uh, boy, that name surfaces for he was an idol of so many fighters. I wish, I wish he had lived longer to realize just what a wonderful impact he had on boxing. I really yeah, do. I mean, to die at 46, a lot of those guys from that era died young. I mean, Barney Ross died in 67 at a young age, but Benny Leonard, you know, I mean, lost all his money in, in the Depression, was forced to come back, and I, I don't know if it's true or not, but McLarnan was saying to him, I'll help you out. I don't want to hurt you. Don't yeah, I believe that McLarnan would say that. You know, I, I, do. don't, I don't want you to take this fight. I, I don't want to do this to you. But then again, but, Foster said to him what Goldman said to Marciano about Lewis. If you really love him, get him out of there quick. Don't torture him. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I can see McLarnan saying that, though. I can, based on what I... Because he said he said certain things in the past that you read about, even about Kanzanieri. He didn't want to beat the Kanzanieri. He could have done Kanzanieri a lot worse, and, but he beat him to a pulp. Mm -hmm. the, the second fly, fight because he was checked off at the first one. Right. And uh, I don't know how much the wife comments about the wife, if they were true, played in it. But uh, McLarnan did that to everybody, but he didn't give Kanzanieri near a whooping that can't that McLarnan had done to some of the other people in the past. So right. You go through the list, so I think it was a little easy on Tony. I think Tony made out better than, than, than most people, but McLarnan was a, a great fighter. I never, I would have, you know, if I was a fighter or if I was a manager, I would have told him to fight McLarnan once, but never give him a rematch. Well, he was like Joe Lewis in rematches. He would just savage you. He did exactly. it to Billy Petrol, and and, um, and I mean, there's a name Billy Petrol, the Fargo Express. They had the best oh. names back then. It's unbelievable to me that, that more people don't know him, that he didn't have a world title. And, and then you're reading in your book about Canzanera and getting ready for another fight, and Goldman puts him in with Petrol just to keep him going, like a warm-up fight. And they go, a warm-up fight with Billy Petrol? Are you out of your I know. I know. And, and I believe, if you go back, and I've been asked this question, well, when was the peak or what was the best fight Canzanera ever fought? It was with Billy in 1932, the 32 fight. He was, Kanzanieri was never better. I mean, in that fight, everything I read was like, this was the best fight Kanzanieri ever gave. And that's one I wish I would have seen because because people ask, you know, what was it? You know, was it Berg? Was it, you know, was it Ross? Was it Ambers? I think it was Billy because that, that, that fight in 32 uh, was amazing. Yeah, that was a good fight. Chris Dundee told me that the first time he fought Jackie Kid Berg, Berg got the decision, but he said Kanzanieri won the fight. He said Berg had Al Wow or Jimmy Johnson, I think it was, behind him. And he said, Chris said, I was at that fight. No one's going to tell me Kid Berg beat him. Yeah, I've heard that. 
I've heard that not from Dundee, but I've heard that perspective. And so I believe that. I believe I'm not a big Chris Dundee fan for some of the things he's done in the past, right. but but I certainly respect him. And, you know, everybody loves Angelo. And you can add me to that list, too. I don't think there's anybody nicer or was anybody nicer. And I spent a lot of time talking to him in Canastota. And um, Angelo Dundee is sacred man. Uh, he was a gift. Reminds me, and I'm so lucky because I've had a chance to meet some of these people and spend time with them, talk to them, ask them questions about everybody. And it's been great over the years. Well, I have to, I was lucky. I met him when I was 13, when I went down to Maple Leaf wow. Gardens to see Jose Napoli's his fighter fight Clyde Gray for the title. And wow. my father let me stay after, and I met Angelo. And, you know, I'm talking to him, and he said, Do you want to meet the big guy? And he never called Muhammad Muhammad. He called him the big guy. And Ali came out, and I just looked up and cried. Oh, and wow. I'm 13. I, I'm not, you know, this is my hero. My whole bedroom's got photos of Ali. I mean, yeah. you're not supposed to meet your hero at 13. And, and I just looking up. And then I worked with him in the movie Cinderella Man. And for the first couple of weeks, we sat there and watched black and white films. And one of the films was Canzanary and Kid Chocolate. And, and, uh, you just said, yeah, boy, if you didn't see Kanzanera, you never saw the real thing. This guy, That's a good fight. That was a great fight. And what I couldn't believe was Kid Kanzanera wins the fight. There's no doubt about that. But Kid Chocolate's crying after and he's upset. Oh, yeah. Was... Thinking, How can he be upset? He clearly beat you. It's, it's not debatable. But he had never had that happen. And then uh, not like that. And... That that one that one fight was incredible. The film's incredible. Watching them both fight and tear to each other is incredible. Lou Ambers actually hitched a ride uh, uh, while he he went on the train. I don't know, you know, I don't recall the whole story off the top of my head, but I put it in the book. But Ambers was actually in the crowd and watched the fight. And Chaka was a another figure who's fantastic career oh, yeah. and a great fighter, very underrated. And the the two of them. They could have a battle between I, the two of them love fashion and that was the one thing they always shared to each other is like who dressed better you know because kanzanari had i think he said 52 suits at one time and, wow. and chocolate was a sharp dresser too and always looked great and uh but that was an incredible fight it's, it's on youtube you can catch most of it but but that's a great fight and and the killer the killer look is what if kanzanari made the 130 pounds and got the other and got the uh the junior lightweight title. Right. And then they would have four, you yeah. know, I mean, that would have been incredible. And people forget, people forget that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they realize at that point, Kanzanari is the best fighter on earth pound for pound. And that's a bold statement when you consider all the other great fighters, but you know, from 125, you'd have to say up to 135 or 140, he's the best, he, you know, and I know, Ray Arcel, someone asked Ray Arcel, they said it was the only time Arcel got angry that, is it true that Benny Leonard had six fights or Joe Gans or different guys, Ambers or Canzanari? And he said, not fixed in the way you think of it today. He said, it, it was fixed in the sense that someone had to say to them, if you get in the ring with Joe Gans or, or Canzanari or Ambers or McLaren, they'll promise not to kill you within one or two rounds. They'll let the fight go six, seven, eight rounds. They would. They you would. Know. I buy that. And I, from everything I've read, I agree with that. 
because he said it was a ter- yeah, it was a terrifying prospect to look over and see Tony Cantonary in the other corner thinking, this guy's three division world champion. You know, I've got 70 fights, but and after a round thinking, I I can't fight this guy. This guy's way out of my league. Yeah, boy, true. Boy, true. And then I said, and every time I think of Kanzanier, okay, so maybe he goes over the peak of his performance, but then to get in a ring with uh, Barney Ross. I know some people have been hard on me. They think I'm, I have a vendetta on, against Barney Ross. I do not. Barney Ross is an incredible, incredible fighter. He was a war hero. And uh, and Ross, I mean, I put in put in the book that that Ross was somewhat hesitant to fight Kanzanieri a third time, not because he was scared, and that's a misinterpretation. Maybe I didn't make that clear. Ross said numerous times he didn't want to fight Kanzanieri because he couldn't figure him out. Because yeah. every time he got in the ring, every time, and he did a series of articles, and I read them all, and he said I, I would get in. One minute, he wouldn't use the left jab. Second round, he just danced around and made me lead. Third round, he led every 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 situation. It's like he couldn't, Ross couldn't get a grip on him, and that's why he didn't want to fight him. It was too much work, too much work to fight Kanzanieri a third time. Had nothing to do with with Ross not being able to beat him, or nothing to do with Ross being scared. Ross is a gifted fighter, gifted fighter, and deserves all the accolades he's got. Yeah. I don't think it came across in the book at all that you were anti anti Ross. Okay. I think you're just making a point. Yeah, that, and that's that, you know, uh, how can you fight a guy that's not the same type? Not only every fight, but every round. It's just too difficult. It's like Ali and Ken Norton. You can't figure it out. Why bother with it? It's very true. If you can't get a read on a guy, and then opposite to that, you look, you know, you're you're reading about Kanzanier going through, it, and all of a sudden you see a name like, like Johnny Jadick, you know, Great pop fun. up and saying to yourself, "How can he beat Kanzanier twice?" Jadick, Jadick just had, you know, in the same way, and you know, you love baseball as much as I do. In yeah. the same way, a pitcher gets a batter, and can get him out constantly. Jadick could always. Find a, we, a hole in Kanzanieri's defense and take advantage of him, and we know that from baseball, right? right. And that some pitchers they just couldn't get certain hit hitters just hit the daylights out of them. Yeah, there, there was some guy. There, there. I, I think it was um, uh, Mantle said if he had to go against Robin Roberts or there was some other person, he would just throw up. <laughs> he just couldn't hit him. And when you watched him play against Koufax. And the Yankees, you know, they there was no argument like there are today with hitters. Koufax would throw strike three, and Mantle would just turn and walk away. Why argue? Can't yeah. Very true. Very true. We you share know, an interest for the to, for the Blue Jays. Oh yeah. So, uh, yeah, I used to own um, a bar in Syracuse for AAA Blue Jays, where I'm getting off oh, the boxing great. circuit. But I just want to let you know that they used to hang out in the bar a lot of the, oh, the cool. early '90s Blue Jay boys. Yeah, back in the 20s and 30s, you know, boxing, baseball, and horse racing were these sports. Oh, yeah. Those Tony really loved cool. the horses. Tony yeah. loved the horses. A lot of people did. Willie, Willie loved the horses. A lot of, I mean, Dempsey, of course, <laughs> loved the horses. I mean, they loved, they loved putting a wager on, always. It's a thrill. Now, we have, we have a ton of questions here. Scrapbook Boxing is a gentleman who writes in all the time said that he has Kanzanieri nine all time on, on the great list. And wow. and he says, not only a great fighter, but a magnificent gentleman. Now he says, at last bell boxing. Mark, I am based in the UK and I've read your book Between the Ropes at Madison Square Garden. 
Can I just say what a fantastic book that is and how much I enjoyed it? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. And uh, I've been, I write about, you know, I, I kid around and there's a guy, I go to a lot of music shows and as a guy said, Mark, you know, you should be writing about country music. You shouldn't be writing about boxing. But I go back. I mean, I, I went back to him and said, you know, people like McGraw, or Taylor Swift, you know, uh, Brad Paisley, they'll have hundreds of biographies written about them. A man right. like Abe Attell, very few, you know, a man like Attell or Attell and Ambers. Uh, I enjoy writing about these guys. I, I enjoy writing about the things I really believe in. The Madison Square Garden book, thank you so much. I wrote about the ring that's in Canastota and the history of the ring uh, that's there and, and uh, the story behind it and how the ring is essentially a Petri dish for our culture. And, and that was the basis of the book. And not much, a fantastic book. And I got to tell you, not much bigger than a Petri dish. Now, I, I probably shouldn't say this. I was there beside the ring with Angelo. And Angela said, take your shoes off. And I was smart enough to know, not the smartest guy, obviously, but I was smart enough to know when Angela said something, I would just say, yes, sir, and do it. She said, now get in the ring. I said, Angela, there's these huge signs. You can't touch the ring. You can't get, just get in it. And I step in the ring for one set. Oh, and, gosh. and he says, take three steps forward. And I did. Where are you now? He said, I, I said, I'm center ring. Right. So now get out, put your shoes on. You imagine Ali had to fight Frazier like that. Ali who danced and needed a big ring in three steps or less. Frazier was on him. For yeah. Rounds. Can you imagine that? A guy wants well, to it gets, it gets you, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. you, you felt it. You know what it's like. Yeah, it, it's it's it was just unbelievable. And all the history in that ring. And when you're oh. talking about, I mean, you have such a wide diversity of books, but great thing about a tell book and amber's book and canzanari is you're bringing them and this gets emotional with me you're bringing them back to life you're putting flesh on them you're, mm -hmm. you're bringing them into the into this century you're, you're saying to people this person matters you have to know about him and that's one of the things i love about you most among many is that you're you're, you're saying you know there's nothing on this guy that's not acceptable to me the world yeah. wants to know about this person Thank you very much. And I got to say, I mean, even with, with Amber's, I mean, I got emotional at the end of the book. I was all tears. I know what the man, I mean, I walked, I mean, this is how crazy I am. I mean, I went to his hometown. I, not that it's that far away. It's three hours, three and a half hours. But uh, I walked every step. I saw his house. I saw the church where he worked out. And, you know, I went to the grid, his family grave. I visited the grave of his spiritual advisor you know i haven't done that yet to go to marlboro but that's a side trip i'm gonna have because these guys mean that much to me they really do and i got involved with this historical societies in the towns and you know i hear from these people i hear from members of the Atal family uh i hear from members of you know the ambers family that and it's just such an honor to have the opportunity to bring these guys to life though it means something to me it really really does you know, and uh, and that's why I write. That's why I write what I write about. You know, you won't see probably the more, you won't see me probably do a book on Mayweather. Not that he doesn't deserve many, because he does, but but I'll stick to some of these other guys, the quiet guys that nobody, they've kind of slipped between the cracks because because they deserve it. Kansi deserved it. I'm glad to see there's another Kansan area book. I hope there's more. Well, it's, 
one. Yeah, Angelo said to me, I told him I was working on a book about Muhammad, and um, he said, um, there's already a million books on Muhammad, write about Canadian fighters that were world champions that no one knows about or remembers. He said, write about Johnny Kulan. You yeah, know, that's a great know, one right there. And and write about Lou Briard. He said, write about other guys. He said, Ali's got a million books. You don't need to write anymore in Ali. Lou, it's Connecticut boy. You know, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, uh, I see a question pop up. Yes, yeah. the answer is the Ambers and Servo were cousins. Absolutely. I didn't know that. Yeah, they worked in, a, you know, where Lou worked with them. Uh, when Dempsey did, uh, Dempsey was in charge of some training. They went and helped him. I put it in the Ambers book. But, uh, and Marty was a good fighter until, fighter until the Graziano fight, right? So, but, uh, but uh, they were cousins uh, and Lou helped them a lot. Yeah, no question about it. And, and uh, Marty was handled by Al Whale too, too. So, the Servo you know, fight, Graziano was a middleweight, Servo was a welter. I think Graziano that's, pounded him. Yeah, that was poor matchmaking. That essentially ended horrible. Servo. Yeah. And, and that's and that's another issue, matchmaking, you know, it makes you wonder sometimes. I mean, I, I know you go to fights and I go to fights too. And and I've seen commissioners really give some of these guys help for some of the matches that they make. And a good and good 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 people will. You know, yeah. I hope I hope there's they're more selective in the matches. It helps it helps the sport. Well for yes, and for a short time, for a couple of years, I worked with for Lennox Lewis here in Toronto when he had his company Global Legacy Boxing. And so you'd have certain guys in Toronto, I'm not going to mention, but they'd have a fighter that was 10 and 0 and you match him with a guy who was, who, who was maybe, um, uh, uh, 10 and seven who'd lost his last five fights. And they go, do you have someone easy? And they give you a name and I would, and then, or you give them another name. Okay. This guy's three and 14. Uh, no, someone easier. And then I go to Lennox, and Lennox would just say, "Forget it. Tell them they're not on the card anymore." Don't Good for him. Yeah, Good I don't. Want, I don't want to put up with that. You know, I, I mean, and that's how people get hurt. Very true. I like Lennox a lot. I had a, a quick story here. Is I I was uh, staying in Canastota for his, in, uh, I was at Canastota for his induction, staying at a hotel, and he was uh, three rooms down from me. I, he stayed in Syracuse. He didn't stay in at Turning Stone or in Canastota. But we had, to, I had some nice conversations with him. I, re, I really liked Lennox. Yeah, he was great. I was I was there that year. He was. Um, he had some wonderful stories. Uh, I there was a time here. Um, he, he shares a, a birthday one or two days apart from Chevallo. So there was a private party for him at a club for the rapper Drake, who lives in Toronto, and they had Lennox's or uh, George's um, cake out there, and there were a lot of people celebrating. And then the people running the club brought a big cake out for Lennox. And Lennox's eyes opened wide and he ran to them. No, 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 no. Get in the kitchen. <laughs> this is George's night. No, no, don't do this. Don't spoil this. Please don't. Put it away. Candles out. Uh -huh. Put it away. Put it back in the box. No, this is only George's night, not mine. Please. So he, class. I, yeah, a, a, a very classy guy. You know, uh, okay, Graziano began his pro career as a welterweight before moving up to middleweight. He had bouts with Harold Green. That's true. Um, it, I know it's an impossible question to answer. Um, you can't rank, when you rank the greatest Italian fighters of all time, because there's hundreds that were fantastic. Oh, gosh. Kids and Aries got to rank right up one or two. Very much. I'm honored to, that I was able to 
Well, I mean, I've written, written a few uh, biographies on some. I mean, I love being from Connecticut. I love Willie Pap. Of course I do. I love Louie Embers, you know, in Kansas area. I've done, I've done five biographies on fighters and three of them have been Italian. I mean, maybe it goes because my kids are Italian. I don't know. Or, or my wives were Italian. I don't know. But uh, the Italians had some great, great fighters. And, and God bless, because I love most of them. Mm -hmm. You know, they gave, I, I can, you know, there's a lot of great Jewish fighters. There's a lot of great Irish fighters. Right. You know, and I just, I, I just want enough time to, to bring these, all these people to light and let people hear about some of them, like Amber's and Canzanieri, and realize how, you know, but I, naturally, I put Canzanieri way up there, without question. It's, I mean, he's one of the greatest fighters, regardless of his ethnicity, ever to have lived. Very you true. Can't, you can't have a top 10 list of greatest fighters. This is another thing I, I wanted to bring up. I, it has to make you laugh. On Facebook and other forums, each of the greatest fighters of all time and the greatest puncher, they'll say, is, is Tyson Fury and greatest boxer <laughs> is this guy. And you're thinking... Have you ever heard of Joe Lewis, the greatest <laughs> that walked the face of the earth? Sam Langford. Sam Langford. Yeah, all those guys. And yeah. and, and it, you know, well, the greatest lighter weight fighter, uh, you know, of all time has to be Devin Haney. And I, I'm thinking, you know, Kansan every would have walked through him. Lou Ambers would have walked through him. You know, so it just it's astounding how little these people that I mean, I don't get involved because Angel said not to, but it's astounding how little they know about the greatness of some of these guys. What I wanted to ask you is, what happened to Kanzanieri's daughter, Denise? What she, uh, she had, uh, she's been in contact with some of the members of the family. I, I know that because I've, I've read articles. Uh, she was, she's still alive. I didn't, con oh, wow. I did not contact her for this book. Uh, she's still alive as far as I know. Um, I, I generally keep, I'm, I'm just apprehensive about some things with family. Uh, plus I had more than enough information just in what I had. I could, I did add, like, as usual, like the garden book came out, uh, the garden book ended up a little over a hundred thousand words. I wrote over a quarter of a million words for that book. Um, so I had plenty of information. I would have liked to delve more into the family, maybe, maybe in the future. Um, I wish she was going on a great career. Uh, I don't know what happened at, after a certain point. I just don't know the answer, though. I wish it did. Have, have you thought about when you, when you visit their homes, like the cities where they were born or the graveyards, have you thought about doing a documentary, a PBS documentary on Canzanieri or Ambers or Intel? Because these are such great slices of American and world history. I would love to. And, and, you know, I'd even throw in Nelson in there too. Had, and that I did one on battling Nelson, and that was a great book too. You know, I know that's getting away away from the other guys, but somewhat in the same division. But, but uh, there's you're right though. There, all of them are fascinating stories, well worth the documentary. And and yeah, I'd love to work on one. I think all all of them deserve it. I really do. I mean, some of them like uh, Pep. You know, I'm looking forward to the movie that's quote unquote going to come out here soon. So, you know, I, 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 here's a good question for you. How, well, you'll decide whether it's a good question, but why does battling Nelson still endure? Why are people so fascinated by him? Your book was magnificent, but he's still someone that people talk about to this very day, like Kanzanieri. 
I think it has a lot to do with some of the stuff that, that I'll go back to Bert Sugar because he and I had a conversation about this because Bert was convinced that that battle, that battling Nelson Oscar had a skull three times thicker than the average person. He was going on about stories. I'm like, that's impossible. And he's like, no, no, he had a skull that was, it was thicker than most. That's why he led with his head all the time. He and Ed Walgast. And I'm, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with fascination of stories that the answer is fascinating, fascinating stories about the fighter that have kind of survived longer than some of the other stuff that should have survived about the fighter. Right. Well, you know, I have a book coming out in the next couple of weeks, Boxing's Greatest Controversies, and I mentioned Will Gast. Will Gast and Nelson were incredibly dirty fighters. I mean, unbelievably dirty fighters, but they, they had such stamina. And the interesting thing I found out about, or I realized about them is, I mean, Will Gast got pugilistic and dementia in his 20s. I mean, his mid-20s. Oh, that early. Okay. And, and, um, Nelson didn't end up much better either, but you, you look at the things he did to J Joe Gans, and uh, not necessarily ratio, but you know Gans having to weigh in a half hour before the fight, Nelson could weigh in the night before, and then yeah. Nelson ends up going to Gans's bar in Baltimore and asking him for help, and Gans gives it to him. There was a certain, I don't know camaraderie, but there was a certain fellowship amongst the fighters that let them know that you know we're. We're, we're the only ones that understand what's going on here. Very true. I'm looking forward to that book. Back to, uh, real quick, to Wolgast and Nelson. Actually, were, they always reminded me of Adams and Jefferson. Don't ask me why. Wow. Because I always wanted to know what each other was doing and almost like, what are they doing? What is he doing? It's, they were so competitive, both of them. Incredible, both of them. I mean, even to their dying day, Nelson's trying to, you know, still thinks he can go another round against Wolgas and fight him again. And You know, it's interesting you mentioned that example because, and I don't take credit for this, I was in the movie Cinderella Man, and I became good friends with Paul Giamatti. And, nice. And so Giamatti said, what have you read? And I said, my favorite author is David McCullough. I love David McCullough. And, and, and also um, uh, oh, Doris Kern's good one. Great and one. I read his book on John Adams, and I said, "This is the best thing I've ever read. You got to read it." And this was years before he did the thing. And I said, you "Really?" Be... Wow. So I said, "You'd be perfect for it." But this was, you know, uh, this was two or four, and he didn't do it to five, six, seven years later. But wow. uh, but during the movie, he said, "Yeah, this is a good book. It helps me get my mind off of everything." So, you know, well, what an was... honor! That's fantastical. Yeah, I mean that's. He was just such a pleasure to work with. Um, so, uh, Scrapbook Boxing wants to know, you've seen, I'm sure you can see this, uh, was Sammy Mandel really Italian? Yes. Yes, he was. Right. And he, he, had, he had changed his name. I mean, back then you had Irish fighters changing to Italian names and Italian fighters changing to Jewish names. It was quite common because ethnic, ethnic rivalries, right? Very much. They sold tickets. Yeah, you know, and uh, but they sold tickets, but they also promoted bigotry, you know, and so and prejudice. So we, you know, yes, I mean, Amber's was D'Ambrosio, you know, and you know, we we know some of the name changes, you know, Willie was Papaleo, you know, so yeah, there was a lot of changes, and you didn't know who was what, 
And it's unfortunate because then I think people, if they had they use their real names, I think people would realize more. We talked about great Jewish fighters, great Italian fighters. Right. They would have realized just how prevalent they really were. I have a poster I have to send you. I got a lot of copies of Comanchel Dundee. And it's from, I sent one to a Canadian fighter, Nikki Filano. And it's from the, from Chicago, from, it, it, it's basically a photocopy, but Angel gave me quite a few at the Italian American Sports Hall of Fame. And it, it's huge, but it's, I mean, it's just big. It's not, but the amount of great Italian fighters that it mentions on it, including Canzanieri is mind boggling. And Angelo said, and that's just maybe a quarter of all of them. Very true, very and true. Now with 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 um, Canzanieri, is there any film of Canzanieri um, talking? Uh, the answer is yes, there are some of him talking. I haven't seen all of them. I know some of them exist, uh, but I, I just don't know how much uh, of it's around. Uh, I haven't been able to find much on the interview sector. I found a lot of interviews in, in newspapers and magazines, but uh, I know there's radio interviews that I haven't got a hold of, and I, I know there is some video, uh, but I haven't seen the video and nor the radio, but I've, I've heard it all. I mean, obviously, I've read all the newspaper interviews. I got to tell you, the most fascinating one I've ever seen is of uh, Barbados Joe Walcott. From, you can get it on YouTube, Mar Madison Square Garden, nice. in the early 1930s. And he's reminiscing about Joe Kowinski and other fighters. And he was working basically as a janitor at, at Madison oh, Square Garden. Yeah. I always wondered, I, I mean, I've heard James J. Corbett's voice, and I heard James J. Jeffrey's voice. Never heard Kowinski's voice. I don't think there was ever... Uh, a taping of it. So it, it, to be able to hear Canzanieri's voice gives you a fuller measure, I think, of the man. It helps put flesh on the bone. Very true. Obviously, we have films, the films that, he's, that he was in. He did a lot of film work. So we do have those, thankfully. So that helps. What, what Now, he was in some movies, though, right? Yeah, he was in Ringside. I put a list. I put some of them in the book. He That's also right. did a lot of television work that that i don't think people are aware of uh i know he did some twilight zone i think he did some twilight zone and i put those episodes in there wow uh there's 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 more than you think um uh, there's more than you think with him um during cinderella man in rehearsal we got to watch the prize fighter and the lady of max bear and primo carnera and in the movie you get to see everyone from the wrestler ed strangler lewis to to Jeffries, you can hear him talk. There's Jimmy McLaren. I'm not sure if Canzanieri was in that one, but I remember watching certain films, boxing films from that time. And you look at the TV and you think that's Tony Canzanieri or that's Jimmy McLaren. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's just fascinating to see them. People don't realize the effect to how truly huge a star these people were. Yeah, magnetic is a good word, you know, because he that's the way Tony was. And he did, I mean, you see him in crowds, even with somebody who's only what, five, four and a half, maybe five, five, sometimes listed that as much. But uh, he's got a magnetism to him. And naturally, the, he's a, being such a sharp dresser makes a difference too. But he really was something. He also had that $10 million smile. Boy, did he. Grin, unbelievable. Miniature Babe Ruth. Yeah. Probably. He, everybody said that, that he looked like the babe. Much better looking, I thought. And his eyes, he had that tremendous sparkle in his eyes. You could just look at him and just think, you know, now the party's here. 
Now we get to be happy. Now everything starts Tony easy. That's true. Very true. And also, would you agree that it has to be, I mean, to be in the same room with your fan, you go to his bar with a three-time, three-division, five-time undisputed world champion has to is something you're going to remember and tell to your grandkids and great-grandkids. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in awe. Just, I can't tell you, and I know you've had the feeling many, many times of just being around some of these guys. I mean, I've had breakfast with Bo Jack and Archie Moore and wow. Tony Graziano and, you know, the list is endless. And I, that's just listening. I mean, I'm, I just shut my mouth and just hope, hope to God I can remember everything they say. Uh, it's, it's lovely to hear these gentlemen or to have the opportunity to have heard some of these gentlemen talk and to get their perspectives one-on-one. It's, I mean, I tell everybody that and I try to, I've done that all my life is try to question history and talk to people about history. I've talked to a lot of astronauts. What was it like to, you know, to be in the command module or to land on the moon? You know, uh, I mean, I'm so fascinated. I did a book on auto racing. I want to talk to the race car drivers. I want a firsthand account if possible. You know, they're, they're having the most in Indy this year in Toronto, like right now as we're speaking. And my wife and I wanted to go down, but you can't go down because tickets have been sold out for a year. You know, wow. it's, it's so popular. You just can't. When you mention those fighters, Bo Jack, someone online, the former champ, mentioned Bob Montgomery, Bo Jack, and Ike Williams. And I look at those guys, and once again, you want to grab people and say, you got to understand, these guys were more than brilliant. You know, Canzanieri to call him brilliant was an understatement. There was so much more to him in the ring and out of the ring than just that. And you look at Williams having to deal with the mob, ended up with no money at all. Yeah. You know, they stole him blind. Zangelo said to me, they couldn't have robbed him better if they put a gun to his head. Bob Montgomery, same thing. Bo Jack, who fought with a broken leg. You know, baseball players coming out because they have a callus or a hangnail. I know. Had a broken leg and said, no, I'm not quitting. Uh, Lou Ambers, who broke broke an arm or whatever during a fight, and when asked if he wanted to quit, he said, I'll beat this bum with one arm. Yep. Yep. And then, then, then to go through, many of them go through the emotional heartache, like people like Ambers killing somebody in the ring. Right. I mean, I mean you think about stuff like that, too. Oh, my word. You never get I mean, over it because it's not personal. You did, you, you're both earning money. Sorry to interrupt. You're both trying to support your family. You don't want to take a man's life. It's not what it's meant to be. Yeah, very true. Very true. And uh, it's, I, it's interesting in that. I, I was very interested to read on how he dealt with that. And I have that in the Amber's book. But by, by writing about Kanzanieri, was just a, uh, I'm so grateful. I mean, it's just a great opportunity to write about him and get his perspective in Amber's. And, you know, and I love McLarnan and Ross. And what a great era, Lou. What a great yeah. era for boxing. I would think the best, to me, my favorite era. What I was going to ask you was, why does it matter so much to people that they ended up friends? That Kanzanieri was friends with McLarnan and Ambers and Ross. I mean, it seems, that seems to be one thing that fans always care about. Were they friends after? Yeah, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking. They can bury the hatchet. I've seen it, and and it mesmerizes me, Lou, because I see I've seen it at Stone over the years, you know, by with so many people. Uh, Willie and Sandy, okay, comes to mind. Sandy Sandler, Willie Pop, yeah. you know, yeah. but but they can bury the hatchet, and 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 they can do it, and and even have Kansanieri hang out with Johnny Dundee for an ex, 
for an extended amount of time. You know, how, how did they become friends? How did they work that out? How did they separate themselves professionally? How did McLaren, I mean, tap Tony on the shoulder and give each other a hug? I mean, they beat the hell out of each other. Yeah. And Joe Lewis loved Max Bear. He was crushed when Max Bear died. And Lewis was emotionally crushed when Marciano died. I mean, these were vicious battles in the ring, but they, they really enjoyed each other. And, and God knows how many funerals Dempsey paid for. Yeah. I mean, every time you, you you pick up the newspapers from that time period, Dempsey's paying for another funeral for a fighter. Billy Miskey, Bill yeah, Brennan. Brennan. Bill Brennan, a great name. Yeah, and Bill yeah. Brennan was a guy who, when he opened his bar, he got threatened by the mob, Dutch Schultz. And Dempsey just said, you got to pay him. You have no yeah. choice. And he wouldn't. And then, you know, Brennan was lured out of his bar and... Peter Benson writes about this in Battling Seeky. He said there were six fighters murdered by the mob in that era. And he runs down the street, runs after the guy, gets to the end of the uh, of the alley, and then a bunch of mob guys open fire on him and kill him. And Dempsey, Dempsey paid for the funeral and helped his wife, but just said, you know, I told him. I said, you got to pay them. I pay them. And people would say to Dempsey later on, why didn't you do anything? You're Jack Dempsey. And he said, do you mean... Why didn't I stand up to the mafia? There's just one of me. They don't care yeah. I'm Jack Dempsey. It means nothing to them. Yeah. You, you pay them what you have to pay them, or they kill you. The other fighters they said the mob killed, uh, they said Harry grabbed and Tiger Flowers because they had this, and Pontrofia because they had the same anesthesiologist who gave them all three an overdose of ether. Although Via, mm. I don't know, because he had gum disease, which would turn into septicemia. And, okay. and then battling Siki, who English wasn't his first language, so he didn't throw the fights he was supposed to throw and lost fights that they thought he would won. And I guess finally they just said, get rid of him. He was in his early 20s. Yeah. Unbelievable, some of this stuff. And I just want to mention here, so, so um, yeah, Sid Robinson became friends with um, Turpin. Scrapbook has, as you can see, has an interesting comment. Uh, Nat Fleischer handing Joe Lewis his ring belt. I've seen that. Tommy Loughran, uh, James Braddock, and Canzanari dining uh, with Joe Lewis's uh, birthday or something or singing happy birthday. Nice. You can hear his uh, voice. Who was he closest to in boxing? Was it Sam Goldman or was it? did it end up being Pete Herman? Well, it was close to Pete Herman for a long time, but they were separated by distance for a long time. Plus, Herman went blind, as you know. Uh, good question. I, I'm trying to think of who I would pick because I know he hung with Dundee for such a long period of time. Uh, was But then he liked all the other guys, too, that came along. I, I really don't know. It's a good question. It's, no, it's Joe, really Lewis good. Really loved, Joe Lewis loved hanging out with Canzanari, but who wouldn't? Yeah, yeah, true. Who wouldn't like to hang out with Joe Lewis, too? Yeah, and, and why is it that someone like Canzanari, fighters back then, they didn't see race? I mean, he had friends that were black, that were Jewish. I mean, fighters today are like that, but back then, that was unusual in, in many parts of society. Is it because of where he was brought up in New Orleans or moving to New York where it was so polyglot? I think it was New York. It was the atmosphere in New York. I mean, the fact that I mean, he got along with Kid Chocolate. They used to kid around about, like I said, about fashions and suits and everything else like that. And I don't know. I mean, I've seen that with so many boxers. They just, it's 
they just don't they're colorblind they just don't see anything like that thank goodness i mean it's, it's right. created some wonderful friendships over the years for crying out loud you know my only regret is we didn't see more of that earlier and we didn't see more you know i did a book on the the world colored heavyweight champions um gosh we missed out on some great fights and some great fighters yeah i mean i knew Lang langford was truly crushed when ketchell died and yep. ketchell, but he always called them steve because he said that's what his close friends called him and he said Ketchell never saw race. He, they used to go to whorehouses together. <laughs> and, and Ketchell was friends with Langford and other black and Jack Johnson and and Terry McGovern was close friends with Joe Gans and George Dixon. I mean, it's it's unusual yeah. for the time. Oh, very much. Well, that's some good names there. Like I love McGovern. You know, and I love Gans. I mean, who, you know, uh, Colleen's book on Gans always comes to mind. Oh, I love but, that. Uh, uh, yeah. Some great people. Gosh, great names, though. Gans was was perfect, and once again, McGovern reading about him just reduces me to tears that he died so young. You never right. got to see him in his seventies or eighties. He never got to enjoy a full life, and this brings us back to the Canzanieri dying at what fifty one. Yeah. And was that because of the the heart attack? I'm mean, not the heart. Excuse me. The cigar smoking and drinking, and that just contributed. Well, to it. he did. They did call it heart disease they did they did label it then that he passed away but i bring up a story about his amateur days where he actually went and um, he had a heart problem he had a heart murmur and they weren't going to let him fight and i put that in the book that uh that they took him to a doctor and a doctor said i don't want him to fight he's got a weak heart and uh he ended up fighting because they went to another doctor the promoters did and I can't think I can't think of the year that was, but uh, I have it in the book. But he had a he maybe that played a part in it. That's the one thing that came up while I was in the research that he had that heart problem as an amateur, that got buried and shoved under the rug, and and his they went to his parents because his mother was really concerned about him fighting if he had a heart issue, but it, the, his Tony's father ended up selling her and saying it's okay they went to another doctor and he checks out fine but that could have played a part in it, it yeah played I, a part I, in it. it probably did i know i have a pacemaker but my my brother's a doctor and he said you know a heart murmur today could be fixed easily it's a mm -hmm. daily thing you're in you're out but he said you have to realize how primitive medicine was back then so to even detect it i mean you, you look at a guy like ernie schaff who carnera didn't kill he died from spinal meningitis but as my brother would say you can't there's no way back in the early 30s you could detect that. Wow. Until the person's actually died. So, wow. you know, he said, whereas today you could. And back then, medical exams in the times of Canzanieri and earlier and even after were cursory. They, they didn't give them complete and full medicals. Exactly. And especially depending on who took them there and who paid for it, you know, in some cases. But, yeah, the promoters actually took Tony to the doctor because they wanted a second opinion and wanted Tony to fight. But uh, that's one thing that did surface over time. Yeah, Kansanier is a smoker. Yeah, he hung out in bars. And from a guy used on a bar business, that secondary smoke gets in your lungs and, and does a number on you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did stand up for a long time. And I uh, it took years to get the smoke out of my lungs. Yeah, it surprises you. It's so funny because I, when I went to the doctor, he's like, well, you got to stop smoking. I said, I don't smoke. And it's unbelievable, but you know, so Kansi 
you know, he was, he was, and when he wasn't in his own bar, the ones that carried his name, he was in other people's bar. Well, by demand. I mean, everyone wanted him. Can you just drop by for a minute or two just to see people? And, you know, 1959, and you think in the 60s, advances in film and television, he would have been an even bigger star. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Television, definitely, because he was knocking it out of the park. And even on Sullivan, when fun, Sullivan finally made the move to, to television, he had those guys on. He had Tony and uh, and Joey on. You can get that skit. I haven't. I know it's out there. I haven't seen it, but they did appear on the Sullivan show. Your book needs to be a movie. Oh, it needs to be a movie. We need a scriptwriter like you, then. Well, both so, of us. It needs yeah. to be a movie. And the great thing is, you would have Tony and the opening scene on Ed Sullivan with Joey Adams. Yeah, right telling jokes. Show. And then the camera focuses on Canzanari. Who was this guy? Yeah, no. Joey's book is good. Definitely worth it. That thank you so much for that. Gosh, that's a nice pitch. Yeah, it, it's it's magnificent. And I, I loved it. And of course, once again cried when I read about him passing away. And you handle that yeah. part beautifully. Well, the one thing there, and I what I talked to the publisher, they're like, You really want to put these pictures of the hotel in there? I said, Yeah, because everybody thought he died in squalor. And, and I know it wasn't the Ritz, okay? I know that, you know, but I put the pictures of his hotel room and, and the hotel the hotel Bryant, and I put it in the book so that, and I, and I said, here's how much, he didn't pay a lot a week, but he was Tony Canzanieri. So it brought a lot of notoriety to the hotel, but I put yeah. pictures of the room. And if you call that squalor, uh, I don't think it's squalor. I don't think it's the Ritz, but it wasn't bad, all things considered. I wanted to break that down because it broke my heart. You know, when I first first started reading about Tony, I only died in poverty in this like rundown, well, terrible, like uh, drug infested, you know, den of iniquity, you know, or something like that. I said, no, I got to find pictures of the hotel and put it in there. I never stayed in a nice hotel like that when I did stand up. I mean, that would, that is it, that those were nice rooms. It's just, it's one of those upsetting, tragic things that a man as truly magnificent and great as him, wow. you know, never got to live his full life. Uh, Scrapbook says here, I have all of your books, great reads. Oh, and, thank you. And people are too nice. And Pete Herman and the Dukinson brothers live two blocks apart. Who are the Dukinson brothers? I didn't know who uh, they were. Uh, I don't know too much about them. I know the name. I know they're, you know, but I, I can't tell you off the top of my head. I couldn't okay. quote. I'd have to look it up. Uh, I've heard of them, uh, obviously. Uh, the name, it rings bells like some of the other names from, you know, you know, the Terrace Brothers and people like, you know, uh, but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head right okay. now anyway. You get your book. Where can people get your book? On Amazon? Amazon.com is a great place. McFarlane and Company, if you like. Uh, and I'll put a pitch in from McFarlane, who believes in boxing, still thinks boxing is a great market. And uh, McFarlane.com, uh, they're just such a good publisher. I can't thank them enough. They got great writers. They got Colleen. They got Clay Moyle. They've got, yeah. uh, you've had a lot of their writers on your shows. Yeah. And Bill and a bunch of people and some good people. So yeah, I can't say enough good things about him. I'd like to get Colleen and Clay as well. Oh, great and Landon Roberts is one I'm trying to get to. I've spoken to him briefly, but um, I understand now. Scrapbook said Maxine Bernard docusin. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So now I understand. 
Yeah, that's, that's well. where I heard him from then. I apologize for not knowing that off the top of my head. Yeah, no problem. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. I could speak to you all day. Oh, let's we'll do it again. Thank you yes, so much. We got to do it Grant again. Boxing, thank you. Thank my you pleasure. still so much. We got to do it on on uh, Lou Amber's, Abe Tell, and the Madison Square Garden. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you all your all your followers and everything. I really appreciate. It. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on, uh, folks. You can get this. You must get this. You must get this at, you can get it at Amazon. Go on McFarland, a uh, wonderful company. Have a lot of, they have all of Mark's books and you can get them all on Amazon and they're great reads, uh, very evocative, very heartwarming. Uh, there are stories in there that'll make you laugh, but it's also stories that'll make you cry, especially when you come to the end of Canzanary's life. But, but in between, I mean, this man was everyone. We lived our life in normal print. Cantonary lived his life in italics. He he, he was just fantastic. As is Mark Allen Baker. Oh, and thank we you, thank you so much for being here, and we look forward to seeing you and speaking with you again soon. Thank you, Lou. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too. And thank you for joining us on Ring Talk. I've just extending the R there, and I remembered it. Uh, my name's Lou Eisen, boxing historian and author, and we will be back here next week with another show. I believe next week is with Nigel Collins, who's ringside editor and writer for Ringside Magazine and was the editor for many years uh, of uh, Ring Magazine and has a great book out uh, which I have read, which I have here, and we will discuss his book uh, next week when he comes on the show. And that's it for today. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and we'll see you next week at the same time. Thank you.